Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here, as always, with David Scott. Great to be back, Paul. Our guest on the show this week, Kerry Craig, who's Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan. Uh, Kerry, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Paul. Hi, David. Now, guys, uh, uh, Kerry is really excellent at explaining the various dynamics at work in the domestic and global economy and on the markets. Um, he also looks after the Australian component of JP Morgan's uh, excellent quarterly guide to the markets, which I believe is out again about uh, early April? Yeah, it's our third business day of each quarter, so 4th of April. Right. Um, and so it was uh, a really, really great deep dive into um, everything that's happening in the global economy, and you should look at it. On the show this week, we're going to start with the local and then keep stepping out to the global level, where we'll uh, eventually get to the US and China, hopefully. Um, but let's jump in. Uh, Australian employment data this week uh, showing a net gain of 13,500 jobs for January. Uh, David, it's not all good news, though, is it? No, there's uh, much you can go and uh, read out of the uh, ABS's seasonally adjusted figures. Uh, there was a big slump in, uh, in full-time employment during the month, uh, around 45,000. That was uh, offset by an even bigger surge in, uh, in part-time employment. Uh, the underlying trends, though, are a little bit disappointing. Uh, hours worked still on an annualised basis is very, very weak at the moment. All sort of points to a figure where the labour market, where it's not really functioning at its full capacity, which unfortunately probably means that there's not going to be any uh, substantial wage rises anytime soon. Right, and Kerry, so there's always talk about the noise in the ABS data. Um, you know, the ABS is trying to push everybody towards their trend uh, figures, etc. Um, what do you see when you when you look at this uh, this data set, um, and, and what are you expecting in the labour market uh, for this year? I think it's like anything when you look at an economic data. It, it, it shouldn't be about a data point. You always look at the trend. Uh, you, you know, there's lots of noise in it. Things get revised. GDP is a great example of that. So we always think about the trend. I think this is a case of extend the trend. We saw this build up in part-time employment start to come through last year. Uh, it was the thing that was worrying us. We've seen underemployment start to rise. Uh, and the hope was that that would shift, that you would see full-time employment come back in, in lieu of the part-time. But clearly that's not the case. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to have to think about for the Australian economy for the rest of this year, that it's still being driven by the part-time employment, not the full-time employment. And what does that really mean for the economy and wage growth? Well, it means that wage growth is going to be subdued, um, and it's not really the kind of employment you want to see. You can just oppose that with what we saw in the sort of business survey numbers and consumer confidence numbers that came out, and those are pointing towards a, a more robust labour market, and that's perhaps where we hope things would go. We see businesses have a bit more confidence in who they're going to hire, uh, their outlook, and they say, well, actually, yeah, I need some full-time workers, not part-time employment right now. And so that would be the positive movement that would come through to say, actually, get a little bit more in wage growth come through, a little bit more inflation, and the RBA would be much more happy, well, than it already currently seems pretty happy, uh, with where the Australian market is actually going. So, Dave, one of the issues here, of course, is that um, the way that part-time uh, employment is defined is anything up to 35 hours a week. Now, there's a lot of people out there who are working 30-hour weeks, maybe a couple of days off a week, right. um, to look after the kids, um, but we just don't know, right? Um, are there other areas um, 
Well, I suppose to clarify that, we just don't know how much of that part-time number is people working very small amounts of hours or people working something which is approximating, uh, you know, uh, something approaching maybe a full-time uh, salary uh, for the household. Now, um, are there any other places we can look for indications of the strength of the labour market beyond that? Uh, potentially there's one you could go and look at. You could look at uh, hours worked per employed person. Uh, so you can go and basically just go look to the ABS website and go and get their data. And just recently, there's been a trend where the hours per hours worked per person has been declining and quite sharply. But just of late, the last uh, last sort of six months or so, there's been a noticeable pickup uh, off very low levels. But it does suggest that there's more more hours being worked by per, by people. So this whole push towards uh, part-time employment, yes, it gets a bad rap. A lot of people talk about one hour per week, unpaid, how rubbish the, uh, the employment growth is, but you can't discount it that, uh, that it's horrible employment. It's, it is still up to 35 hours a week. So given that you've seen, a, on average, workers are starting to go and work a little bit more hours than what they were at the start of uh, 2016, that's a reasonably good sign for, uh, for where the labour market's heading. So let's just talk about an important flow-on effect of that. If, there is, if the labour market is strengthening a little bit, one thing that you're likely to see as a result is some wages growth. Very important at a macro level, but also day-to-day -day level in, to individuals uh, in terms of how they're feeling, um, the conversations with their bosses about um, how much is going to be in their pay packet. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of stats around, you know, the stat, and the stats will show you that there haven't been a lot of wage rises going for people. Um, for any, of any significance in, in recent years um, on an aggregate level. Um, ANZ this week launched a new tracker which shows some of the leading indicators of wages growth and they're showing them actually ticking up. Um, David, do you want to take us quickly through that? Um, yes, the, another uh, probably more approximate and timely uh, reading on what's going on with wage pressures based on what the ABS, sorry, what uh, ANZ has come up with. Uh, so they've basically taken a whole lot of different uh, data points from the household sector, business surveys, the National Australia Bank business survey, uh, and things like commodity prices and the like to go and come up with this table. And uh, they reckon that it has a fairly good uh, relationship with unit labour costs. So not just uh, you know, what your wage is per hour, but also how much hours are being worked, essentially. Uh, and they say that uh, they're seeing signs that, uh, that wage pressures bottomed uh, in the second quarter of last year. It is now starting to rise. So that's going to be something relevant to, uh, to go keep an eye on with the wage price index from the ABS coming out next Wednesday. Uh, the one thing of caution with the ABS tracker, and they uh, mentioned themselves, their economics team there, is that a lot of the increase that they've seen recently has been driven by the RBA's commodity price index. Now, everyone's seen the, uh, the huge spike that we've seen in uh, coking coal, iron ore, uh, that's suddenly going to flow through from a nominal perspective incomes into, uh, into the economy. But the question that so many people have about that particular spike in, in incomes is how long will it last and will it have time to go and filter into the economy like it's done in the past during, during previous uh, resources booms. Because the issue here is that wages growth has been in decline, Kerry, for a long time now in Australia. Um, the last, uh, when we got the figure three months ago, showed an all-time uh, record low for the private sector of 1.89%. Um, so, you know, this is a structural thing, and the question about whether the bottom is really in on wages growth is a big one. 
Um, what do you see when you look at um, uh, you know the sources, potential sources of wages growth uh, for Australia? Well, I think about that that structural decline is, is reflecting of the, the structural change in the Australian economy, and it relates back to you know what you're just talking about, commodity prices and the composition of the labour market. So whether it's full-time, it's part-time, think about where the jobs have been growing and where they have been coming off. Where have they been coming off? You know, those people who earned a lot of money in the mining sector during the heydays, they're not there anymore. They're not getting paid those salaries. Whereas the job growth coming through, it's coming through in tourism, it's coming through in education, it's coming through in retail and admin sort of work where perhaps there's more part-time employment because you don't have full-time people there. And those are, unfortunately, the areas where people have a lower wages. So on average, it brings the average wage down. So a lot of that structural shift in the economy away from the mining sector uh, has led to the lower wage growth that come through. Uh, I think that in terms of are we seeing a bottom in this, I would look at the labour market as being something that's getting tighter. You know, we think about the Australian economy looking a little bit better in terms of its outlook, the fact that iron ore prices are higher, you know, has as temporary as it may be, uh, they are going to be higher on average this year than they were last year. Uh, that will filter down into national, from national incomes into household incomes at some form, and it will take a little bit longer to get there. So that should be reflected in seeing uh, household income start to rise and a bit more wage growth. But it's not a situation that's unique to Australia. You've got a very tight labour market in Japan, no wage growth. Tight labour market in the US, low wage growth. So some of it's driven also about how companies and corporates uh, are looking at the labour market, are looking at hiring policies, preferring to split rather than split labour rather than hire one person. So it's not just about the economy and the government, it's also about how, how corporates are approaching how corporates are their labour force. Yeah, and um, like the whole thing, there's a lot of very large companies uh, who, which have very, um, uh, which are actively trying to make sure that they build more diverse uh, workforces because they, you know, there's a lot of research that shows um, it leads to better outcomes all sorts of ways, not just employee engagement, but um, from you know, uh, uh, corporate results levels. Uh, you know, when we talk about, um, uh, say, even just take the, the brutal metric of uh, gender split, gender diversity across boards, and then um, throughout a company, um, you know, there's uh, plenty of research that shows when you've got these um, better balance in, better gender balance in the workplace across the organization, uh, that uh, you tend to have all sorts of uh, improved outcomes um, for your business. And in order to facilitate that, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, um, more constructive and um, less of this sort of 40-hour, 42-hour week uh, structure. You get to work 42 hours? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I need to speak to you after the podcast, I'll go out my hours. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, and I expect there's a lot of uh, people sitting uh, nodding in agreement uh, as they're listening. Um, but um, so you have had this corporate um, uh, policy level influence uh, on that as well, I think, um, which you know, um, which can't be denied. And I also then think when you think about the, the nature of work too, plenty of people sort of think the tools are there now to work a bit more flexibly and to have a bit more control over your. Um, uh, over your time, etc., um, and that you know people don't need to be in an office, uh, you know, uh, all the for all of those hours to be as productive as, and perhaps they probably they may have been in the past. So you put all those things together, and there's this structural shift. Consequences are very significant. For federal budget, you miss some of the um, the impact of bracket creep um, when you don't have wages growing as quickly as in the past. Um, you know, uh, you're going to miss some of that income tax that you would uh, be collecting um, as uh, people moved into higher brackets. 
um, and also then on the consumer side. So, and I think one of the important factors, outcomes of this is when people don't feel they're getting ahead, it's harder to get sort of a bullient and, you know, um, spend a bit more and go out on shopping sprees. And maybe that's, you know, feeding into some of the weakness that we're seeing in the, the retail sector. Well, it sounds like to me that your thesis is that the whole work-life balance shift has ruined the economy and the inflation outlook. But uh, it, it is about that. I think um, the consumption argument in the economy is, in any developed economy, is the thing that really drives growth. So it's about household consumption. Uh, what's helped in terms of the consumption for the Australian economy is that households have brought down their savings rates. So we haven't seen increasing incomes. They've just saved less and brought that savings rate down and down and down. And, you know, you dig into what the RBA said in its statement of monetary policy and they're thinking, actually, that saving rate's going to flatten off now. We're not going to see that come through. So if that's what's been holding up consumption and people spending and driving the economy, if they don't see their wages starting to go up, then we would expect consumption to be weaker or at least softer. And, and that could be a very negative thing for the economy. Take the first three quarters of GDP growth last year, the consumption component, what a contributor to growth, slowly smaller and smaller and smaller. So you definitely do want people to spend to drive an economy forward, they will do that when the outcome or with their certainty about their job or their certainty about their wages or just the, the certainty about their wealth of their house looks more bright. So we will look at that quite closely in terms of what are the, one of the big risks for the Australian economy. It's, not, it's yeah, sure what the metal prices do, but largely is how much and healthy is the consumer and how do they view the economy and how do they view their prospects. Because household consumption is a gargantuan uh, uh a part of the of the GDP, I think it's something. It'll like be around that. at 63, 62 percent in Australia. In the US, it's like 70 because it's an outlier, but we're in the 60s. Um, and Dave, just on this, a uh, really interesting number this week: car sales. Um, that's a potential indicator of you know how people are feeling about you know bigger purchases, maybe um, taking on a little bit more debt, personal debt. Um, there's some signs that the growth in new car sales in Australia is flattening off. There is a little bit of a rolling over effect there, but mind you, it's still a very elevated level, so let's not, uh, not, not get too pessimistic. But uh, yeah, there's uh, been a constant decline you've seen in, uh, in passenger vehicle sales, and, uh, and that's basically been offset by a huge increase in, uh, in SUVs, as the ABS puts it, but four-wheel drives. But uh, that seems to the four-wheel drive... Tourac tractors and... Yeah. Correct, you know, Mossman Mothers and the like, uh, all that kind of thing with the, uh, with the various uh, forward drives. There just seems to be that uh, there's less being purchased. Now, whether that's got something to do with the, uh, the increase in petrol prices that we've seen uh, in the last six months uh, on the back of OPEC and, uh, and other things, that could be another factor as well. But uh, it's, just, it's interesting as a, as a sign of uh, no confidence in the economy. Car sales is a pretty good indicator, so it's still elevated, but it is just starting to go weaken slightly. Okay, uh, I just want to jump in one important thing. Uh, uh, Kerry, you talked about the business survey, the NAB business survey. Um, uh, the conditions index in that this week, uh, which is an average of uh, the survey sales, profitability, and employment, measured, uh, employment measures, that was up six points to plus 16, which is a very, very high number. That's the highest level it's been since October 2007. Uh, familiar date, I think. Um, uh, in sort of the, the, the modern financial era. Now, um, so after that, NAB um, subsequently, I think 48 hours later, within 48 hours, um, changed its forecast for interest rates because it sees businesses feeling confident about um, investing, about the current activity, activity levels of business, which is, uh, I suppose, a very encouraging sign 
um, uh, at least in the short to medium term. What is your uh, outlook now for domestic growth this year? Um, we had that negative quarter for September. We're about to get the December quarter numbers uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, how do you see uh, this year playing out in terms of uh, GDP growth for Australia? Well, I think uh, you know we will get those fourth quarter numbers, and you know largely it tells us what happened last year. And do you really care? Um, to a certain extent, I think well you should, but you know we're looking about where we're heading, and so that's going to be the overarching factor, and particularly how markets react to it. So again, it's what we've seen for the first few months of this year is an improvement in how uh, the global economy is going, and obviously because Australia is an open economy, that affects us, and it makes our outlook look brighter. The the boost and the sort of more sustainable outlook for iron ore prices that's coming through and, and commodity prices suggest that that positive impact from uh, terms of trade that feeds through the net income should all see growth be better this year. So I take it as a case of the Australian economy faced some pretty strong headwinds for a long time. You know, whether it was the falling commodity prices, the weak national incomes, all that's starting to fade away. So there's still challenges there, but those headwinds aren't, definitely aren't as strong. And so you should see better growth this year than you saw last year. You see the labour market start to improve, businesses start to hire, all that fuels that back in. A property market, again, that's looking like it might cool a little bit, but not crash, so the wealth effects aren't that horrendous as many people perhaps think they could be, all sort of shapes up to an economy that's uh, going to do okay. You know, it's it's... Still batting on the third day of that cricket test, and you know it's still struggling away. But perhaps it's not going to win just about yet. Uh, Dave, uh, what are your? I mean, we haven't seen any of the GDP partials uh, yet, but uh, they're going to be coming um, over the next couple of weeks. Well, we saw we saw one partial, which will feed into household consumption, which was retail turnover, which uh, accounts for roughly about thirty percent of uh, of household consumption, and it was uh, very strong in the December quarter. So that's. Some estimates, some people say that it could add to um, as much as 0.5 a percentage point to growth. Um, throw on top of the mix, uh, ramping up of LNG exports as well, remembering that GDP is measured, real GDP is measured in volume terms. So you're gonna be having more volume of LNG being pumped out and sent abroad. So that's gonna go and have a natural effect of amplifying GDP a little bit as well. Uh, beyond this year, though, that's where I think I agree with what the NAB is saying. Uh, they're still concerned about the potential ramifications of the slowing of the residential uh, construction boom, the, the tapering off of those LNG boosts to exports, uh, and that really leaves a lot of, uh, of the heavy lifting to be done by the household sector. So that's why it's going to be such a crucial cog in the economy to get the domestic economy going, to get labour market hiring firmer, increase spending because it's going to be one of those key areas that's going to have to go and drive the economy 2018 onwards. Uh, Kerry, just quickly, um, just because it's such a big talking point at the moment, but um, one thing that will be certain to um, dint confidence a bit would be um, a bit of a fall or a, a, a or something a bit nasty happening in the property market. Uh, what's your uh, take on how you see the property market this year? Yeah, I have to uh, agree with David. The the building pipeline is still going to be quite strong and that will add to growth this year, but it is past that when that starts to roll over. I think you're already seeing the supply of houses, particularly on, on the, sort of the, the, the East Coast, start to come out as people are just like looking at selling their houses. Um, they're looking at the market coming off a little bit. And there are always those questions about you know, when is the bust going to happen, when is the collapse going to happen. And 
it's really thinking about the liquidity issue. You know, if households do start to get squeezed by higher rates, if banks start putting up out-of-cycle uh, rate hikes coming through, how much does that really impact on what's going to happen for households and household spending? Does it take down discretionary income? And I think that's the, the real crux for the economy. Does that really impinge on it? And I think that as the RBA tries to grapple with what's happening on the East Coast versus the West Coast, when we think about the households, and we think about we have to think about aggregate because it's how we get the data. There's a few things to say. Well, actually, they're able to deal with some of those liquidity pressures a little bit more. Just have a look at how investments have changed over the course of the last few years. There's 580 billion dollars in cash sitting in cash accounts in Australia. That's up remarkably. That replies. That's a pretty big cushion. Suddenly, should your uh, incomes look so good, or you need to start pulling money out of the bank to, to pay for some of those mortgages? That's money that's come out of equity and fixed income markets, but it's providing quite a large buffer to say anything really impending shock or an income shock that would hit the housing market that people suddenly don't have the money to pay their mortgages. And I agree, that's an aggregate position. It's not for every household. So. I think the household debt levels are extreme, they're very high, you didn't have the sell-off here, but it's not all doom and gloom. You know, the solvency issue, we've seen the assets go up much faster than the debt, so it's not really a solvency issue. The liquidity has some, not necessarily silver linings, but at least some buffers in place to say, suddenly if rates go up a little bit, we're not going to be forced with these households to stay into sort of foreclose on their homes and mortgages that aren't getting replayed, you know, as we saw in the US in the, in the depths of the financial crisis. So. I think that's going to play a lot into saying a housing market that cools and not collapses. Yeah, and um, CBA this week reporting, um, you know, didn't have any major um, like they. I think they were increased their provisions for bad and doubtful debts to five hundred and ninety-nine million, um, but um, they don't seem terribly worried about it. If there was a big uptick in provisions for bad and doubtful debts, then you would be. Um, there's, there would clearly be conversations going on between the bank and a lot of its customers, um, but that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, so, um, okay, it's a, we'll obviously be returning to that topic um, throughout the year uh, because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's something that people um, have questions on uh, every single week. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia, and our guest uh, on the show is Kerry Cray, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan. Now, speaking of global, we have touched on uh, the commodity prices. Um, obviously, we've seen all the headlines about iron ore being back above 90 US dollars a ton, coal prices really helping Australian companies, uh, mines reopening in the Hunter Valley. Uh, no doubt uh, all of this. Uh, income will, um, you know, that for Australian companies is going to help the federal budget, it's going to help uh, profitability of miners. Uh, but these are indicators that um, there have been some changes afoot in the Chinese economy. Um, Kerry, I was wondering maybe you could recap um, just a bit bigger picture of what's happened in China over the last 12, 18 months, how the picture's changed from one of slowing growth, which it was for a long time, to one of steady growth at kind of above 6.5%. Um, with the economy transitioning. Um, what is the key thing that's really changed, do you think, in the last uh, six, 12 months or so? Yeah, when I consider China and think about it, it's almost like it's if the Titanic hadn't sunk. You know, you've gone to watch the movie and you're like, I know what happens. And then you're a little bit disappointed because it didn't crash into the iceberg. And that's kind of how I think about China. It's this massive ocean liner of an economy. And then uh, 
suddenly it was rolling over and everyone expected it to collapse. You know, a year ago, the, the debt burden looked so strong, the, the growth was coming down, people were worried about that hard landing, which seemed to always come up and no one really could define. And then suddenly the government said, well, we'll just start putting more money into the system, we'll start putting more liquidity. And so to right the ship, they just flooded the ballast. It's probably not the most sustainable thing in the long run, but it means we're not concerned with what's happening in the economy over the next 12 or 18 months. And if we think about the change in political leadership, that's another reason to believe, well, they're not really going to let the ship roll over again because they want to keep everything stable. So it's the facets of the economy, it's they're looking at the financial sector and what they should be doing is, is letting companies default and instead they're providing liquidity so it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't happen. They should be letting the currency fall much further than it is because it should be weaker, but they don't want that because they're trying to preserve financial stability uh, and maintain those outflows. They should be letting the property market deliver and come down, but they're not. They're just trying to prevent it from collapsing. So they're keeping these plates spinning, and I think for many investors and many market watchers like myself, stability in China is all you need. You just need the story to become less bad and things start to improve. It's one less thing you can worry about over the near term. So if you factor on top of that, the household consumption, as we talked a little bit, and the, the retail sales numbers being flat and not falling you know, on a three-month annualised basis around about 10%. Industrial production's levelled off. The manufacturing sector is no longer the disaster it once was. And you look at the Chinese PMI numbers for services or manufacturing, they've all rebounded. It all suggests that the economy is, is not fixed, but it's not nearly as broken as it once was, and we're not worried about that ship sinking uh, in, in the near term. That's a great overview. Uh, David, global manufacturing um, uh, PMIs, uh, China, obviously, a big component of this, um, been ticking up recently, and this week we got um, producer price inflation. So it's not just you know PMIs ticking up, but producer price inflation looking um, looking pretty hot. Very hot. Uh, it'll be hot for a while, but then uh, on an annualised basis, it'll start rolling over because it's got a low base effect from uh, from. If you think back to this time last year, uh, you had the. Lows for, uh, for many of the commodities, crude, uh, iron ore was a, a month before that, uh, coal was doing nothing, and all of a sudden they've exploded over the past 12 months. So a lot of those prices increased the Fed through to produce the prices, factory gate prices as they're called, um, particularly for raw materials, surprise, surprise, uh, and also for extraction. So uh, energy extraction, mining extraction costs have gone through the roof. Uh, but there is some sort of signs that that's starting to go and flow through to the consumer prices as well. Uh, even forgiving that there's some problems trying to go and read too much into data around uh, January and February in China due to the Lunar New Year holidays. But uh, non-food inflation, uh, consumer price inflation, ticked up to a level that's not been seen in many, many years uh, in, in January. So that gives you an impression that the reflationary story in China, much like you've seen in the rest of the world, is very much on track at the moment. So speaking of reflation uh, in the rest of the world, uh, has been a huge topic um, particularly uh, out of the United States. Um, so, I mean, let's just start with uh, U.S. Treasury yields, uh, Kerry. Um, we saw a big spike in yields um, that had started uh, before the election in November. Mr. Trump won. Uh, we saw another big uh, surge in yields, bonds selling off. Um, but they seem to have found a new ceiling, um, at least for a period, um, maybe because there's now questions in Washington about how much of his agenda he's actually going to implement, uh, what he, how he will pay for them, etc. Um, but I suppose what's, what I've 
I'm curious about is uh, how do you think this is affecting the global outlook and what kind of clients are, are, are JP Morgan, what kind of questions are JP Morgan clients asking at the moment? Well, I think the reflation point is, is, is key to the outlook and it extends back to what we're seeing in China about those PPI numbers coming off the lows is that China was exporting this deflation to the rest of the world. It was, it was one of the problems. That's no longer the case. You know, we think about fiscal spending coming through uh, to create that inflation that's been built into inflation expectations. That's really back to that uh, in or that reflationary environment that we're in. We're thinking about central banks around the world, whether it's the ECB or the Bank of Japan or even the US Federal Reserve stepping back from those extraordinary monetary policy members. They're still very, very important, but they're doing less bond buying perhaps, and they will do less on the future. You know, what does that all add up to? It adds up to, to higher bond yields. Uh, those themes about reflation and the improvement in the economy, though, aren't suddenly something that just happened on November 9 after the US election. There were themes that were just already building in. There were themes that were building up in the economy, and so they were just amplified to a certain extent about rhetoric out of the US. Um, and it was a very positive thing for market, and, and you saw yields moving, you saw equity markets moved, and there was a lot of optimism priced in, and the US dollar went up, and then since then you've sort of had people do a bit of reality check and said, got this guy over in the US and he shouts a lot and he talks a lot and he's on Twitter, but you know, how big is the stick he's actually carrying? Maybe it's quite small. And I think that's what markets are grappling with now and why you're seeing yields on government bonds trade within a range, why you're seeing the dollar come down a little bit and do a bit more range trading as people are looking for the detail. The devil's in the detail, as you know. So they're looking for that to start to factor through. They really want to hear about exactly how much is going to be spent, how much is going to be funded, what the corporate tax structures will look like. Um, and what actually can be delivered, because as much as Donald Trump can talk about spending and what he wants to do, his problem is the same as mine. Where in my household, I control none of our budget. My wife does, <laughs> purely because she's good at it. Uh, and it's the same with the US. Donald Trump doesn't control the budgets. The Congress does. So he needs to get all the stuff through Congress. There are many people in the Republican Party who differ on the views that he has about spending. They see a US deficit that's already going to start to increase because the economy is slowing and entitlement didn't get resolved. And they say, maybe I don't want to get that any worse than it is. Yeah. And he's talking about, I think, something in the order of $500 billion uh, in, in infrastructure spending that it would be debt funded which is a very large number. The, the question I've got to ask as well is, uh, we saw overnight uh, US retail sales beat expectations again, another solid result. We saw core US CPI going to tick up to 2.5% year on year. These are all signs that the economy is already strengthening. Uh, so the question comes back to, does it need to have any more stimulus tipped on top of it? Uh, and that's another question. If that, that stimulus was applied, uh, what would that do to bond yields because and then what down the track would that potentially do to markets? What would it do to growth? So it's one of those questions where it actually needs to be answered. Like, you know, does the US economy, where it sits at this very moment in time, need to have a whole lot of money flooded into the system to go and uh, improve growth anymore? But our view of that would be that, well, I don't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe outside of a recession you've had fiscal stimulus of the size that's being discussed in the US. So immediately you have supply side constraints in the US, whether it's the labour market, the capacity and the manufacturing base that's meant to become revigorated. You know, you can propose this stuff, but there's no workers to do it in order to make the things, then the impact on the economy is not as big as everyone expected. So I think it's, it's fair to say that you can't compare what's happened during a recessionary period where you have spare capacity to grow the, grow the economy at a much higher rate compared to where you don't. So that's one thing Mr. Trump can't change. You can't change the supply side of that economy. Can't change aging people and demographics. So that's going to immediately limit the growth you get through coming through on that. The second thing when I think about what it means for yields is and uh, potentially what it means for fixed income investors is that 
even as yields start to rise in the US, there's plenty of demand still there. There's a, there's a, there's a, a net supply shortage of, of government bonds around the world. You still have the Fed who's keeping their balance sheet at 4.2 trillion. Uh, you still have foreign investors, whether they're in Europe or the Eurozone, Eurozone or, or in Japan, who are looking at much lower yields and suddenly look at maybe if the US Treasury gets to 3% going, I'll take that very much, thank you very much, please. You've got pension funds, you've got insurance companies with regular changes who have to own these things. So that to us keeps a cap on where these yields actually go, no matter what happens in terms of the spending plans that you know we don't think will come through at the magnitude that's being talked about. One of the absolutely uh, fascinating points on this, and it was, I think your colleague, I'm going to have a crack at his name, but he's head of US equity strategy at JP Morgan. His name is uh, Dubravko uh, Lucas Bujas. Um, and he's, um, he's told our colleagues at Business Insider in New York that he sees continuing strengthening in the US dollar as a potential problem. This was something that um, I think you've um, flagged uh, in the last uh, quarterly guide. Um, do you want to talk us through it? Yeah, so the, um, we think about the, the, the US dollar as the barometer for, for financial conditions around the world. So uh, it went up very aggressively uh, over 2014-15, you know, 20% over 18 months. And, and suddenly people are looking at it and saying, well, it's pretty overvalued where it is. And then you can get this boost that comes through if you get uh, border taxes that should theoretically make the dollar go higher. Uh, if you get higher interest rates out of the US, then perhaps it's being factored in. So if you look at the markets looking for two to three, if you get three or four, suddenly that pushes the US dollar up. What does that mean for the rest of the world? World, well, it just imposes tighter financial conditions on places like China. You know, if the US dollar goes up, the one comes down. They don't want it to come down that fast, so they're having to grapple with their own economy again. Um, you think about the impact on emerging markets and some of the positivity that's been seen there. Just think about what it means for um, importers in the US, the oh, sorry, exporters in the US, uh, everything else that feeds through. So a very much stronger US dollar. Uh, while may seem good for an economy, is actually too strong, it's not good. And in fact, if you looked at the health of the economy, you'd say, well, it's got this massive deficit and everything else, and it's going to slow over the coming years because it's very long in the tooth in terms of its recovery. That would all imply a lower dollar, so it shouldn't be going up. So these higher dollar narratives is all very near-term view, and it's very difficult to actually figure out where a currency is going to go. But you have to say there's definite room for near-term strength in the US dollar, not necessarily the appreciation we've seen in the past. Maybe it goes up a couple of percentage points. A lot of it's going to be dictated by the Fed and what's been priced in in terms of rate hikes. But over the long run, you'd think surely it has to come down, and that's why if it still goes up, it undermines a lot of the improvement you've seen that's come through over the last six or eight months in the global economy and in the financial market. And Dave, of course, this is crucial to you know um, what's happening with the Australian dollar. Uh, we've seen this week, we've seen a fairly solid strengthening uh, back above 77 cents uh, today. Yes, back in the death zone, as I've uh, nicknamed it. Yes. Um, so what, the, what are you seeing with this dollar strengthening? Um, there's a lot of very... Um, uh, unusual stuff happening, isn't there, in, just in terms of the short-term trading? Uh, depends on how short-term you want to go and talk about. But Aussie's obviously benefiting from higher commodity prices. It's a very low volatility uh, world that we live in at the moment as well. Uh, that's allowing the carry trade to go and assist the Aussie dollar as well. Uh, and the US dollar, whilst it's strengthened recently, uh, last, uh, last week or so, uh, it has come off the highs that we saw earlier this year as well. So you put those three things together, the Aussie dollar's got a benefit. And then, of course, the IBA has been very, very optimistic uh, in terms of where they see the economy heading, very comfortable with where things are. So all of those things have helped the Australian dollar. Um, as to what the point I think you're trying to go and ask me about, uh, in Asian trade, there seems to be this, uh, this relationship now where 
the dollar yen will go and move around and that will go and impact the, the US dollar index and whatever the US dollar index does, the Australian dollar does the opposite. Um, so that's what seems to be driving each and every day, no matter the data releases even today, uh, we're seeing the same thing, the yen strengthened, the US dollar is weakened and the Aussie dollar is kept off fairly firm back above 77. One other uh, issue which I, I think shouldn't probably be ignored when we're looking at the global picture is Europe. Um, whereas Marine Le Pen and the National Front did not really look like a chance a few months ago, uh, the left has been weakened by this extraordinary story with Fionn uh, emerging that he was uh, something like a million dollars worth of work, most of it taxpayers' money uh, to sort of government positions for uh, his family and friends, extraordinary, uh, couldn't have um, come at a worse time because he was seen as a sort of shoe-in for the left, um, uh, sort of centre-left candidacy which would have kind of steamrolled uh, uh, Le Pen uh, in the conventional wisdom but these are not conventional times. Um, so there's been a bit of a strengthening of the Le Pen um, vote I think in, in recent polls. Um, and then we've also got this, you know, there's ongoing problems with, um, with the banking system in Italy. There's still a lot of debt there, still a lot of concerns over the strength of the economy. Um, Kerry, uh, with the European picture of political risk, um, how are you thinking about that at the moment? With uh, regard to fundamentals, actually, the, the trend you're seeing within the economy are actually improving. So if you're based on that, by itself, you'd think there was a good investment opportunity there. So you're seeing, and I think that would actually lead to seeing a, a pretty respectable performance from European equities this year, in fact. Um, you, you're seeing that reflation come through there in, in the Eurozone. It's, it's not to the same extent you're seeing in the US, but that's a positive in terms of it means that you're not going to see uh, a lot of accommodative, or a lot of tightening in monetary policy from the ECB, so the bank's still being very accommodative. Uh, the euro's coming down, which is very supportive. Uh, higher commodity prices are actually going to help the equity market in terms of its composition and what it can return. Those PMI numbers we talked about earlier, the highest in three years, or highest since 2011 exactly, in the eurozone. So there's a lot of positive momentum in the economy that suggests the market could do quite well, and then over the top of that you have politics, and that's everyone anyone reads about. Now, our base case is that you are going to have these populist parties do quite well in the sort of the first rounds of these elections, but really not have that momentum to carry that through to become an outright leader in any one of those governments. So you end up in a coalition or, or some other sort of um, split party system that leads to a lot more centrist views, and a lot more watered down politics. And the other thing we think about in this, and there's some survey data that points to it, is that you know for a lot of those economies, when they've said, you know, what's your view towards the euro? They still like it, they still favour the euro. They're not so big on migration and open borders, but they still like the euro system as a whole, particularly those economies that have had uh, a bit better fear of it since you know, 2011, like Spain. Italy hasn't performed in that way, unfortunately. You know, its political system is still a bit more messy than the other ones, and it still has some problems with its banking, but you know, even those are starting to be uh, cleared up to a certain extent. And then you look at what's happening in the earnings story, and because they come at quite low levels, you're seeing some pretty decent earnings numbers come through from those companies as well. So, so right off Europe uh, as a place where investors can actually find value relative to, say, the US in terms of what you're paying for your equity story, I think would be um, a risk in terms of your outlook and what you're trying to do in terms of returns. But it does come with the other problems of, of the politics maybe dominating for a little bit longer. So I would probably be class myself as being a little bit more positive on the European story than many people out there at the moment. But because I think the politics won't go as bad as what it was. You know, you think of it as a beach ball. Like this is the uncertainty that's weighing on this beach ball, pushing it under the water. And then we know, and what we learned last year is that 
politics is uncertain, but the impact on the markets is also uncertain. So it doesn't mean it's going to be a bad thing. So that beach ball is going to be released, that uncertainty is going to go away, and the market could pop back up. Mm -hmm. And I certainly think, uh, with France at least, one thing that focus minds would be, you know, at the entire country having to re-establish some kind of currency. Um, if uh, Le Pen was to win and go ahead with the follow-through on this threat to leave the euro, and um, the, the consequences of that could be, shall we say, significant for people who have a bit of money uh, tucked away in uh, well, just think well, about the, the, the consequences for Germany. Like, how expensive would the German currency get? You know, if you go back to the Deutsche Mark, it would, you know, they'd just be through the roof. Um, okay, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, the summer is winding up. Uh, it's heading into the winter. Quickly talk about the sport we're going to watch. I'm excited about the rugby. Uh, Six Nations is on at the moment. Ireland lost to Scotland. Very disappointing. Thrashed Italy. Um, but we've got uh, England and France to go. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and the Wart has a course this year. I'm looking forward to them uh, smashing all the Kiwi teams. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll see about that one. <laughs> um, Dave? Ah, oh, look... Uh... As you said, Waratahs, I'll still go there and cheer. Uh, we had a, a good run there a few years back uh, where we won the title. I'm not sure if we're going to have the same success this year, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. Uh, A-League's still on. It's getting to the, uh, the crux end of the season. I'm a big Sydney FC fan, so uh, hopefully they can go and uh, smash the uh, Wanderers uh, this weekend. Um, Rugby League, I don't have a team. Until the NRL brings back the Bears, I'm not going to follow it. Gary? <laughs> I didn't mention the Lions tour. Oh, I know. Well, this is a big decision. Big, big decision. Do I stay or do I go? The Lions Tour, yeah, that's got to be the one. That's, uh, uh, the Lions Tour is just, it's not the big games, it's the games where they play like, you know, the dirt tracker teams. Those are the best ones. You see some just unbelievably good rugby because those guys are so excited to be playing against the big names from, from, from England and Ireland. That's true. And look, one thing I know about Lions Tours because I um, did a bit of it, um, I did Brisbane and a bit of Sydney uh, when they were here uh, a few years ago, and um, let's just say it's uh, you know it's it's expensive, uh, not just uh, in a financial sense, but also in a metaphysical sense as well. Yeah, I thought, I thought you were going to hard talk, going. I thought you were going to talk about your liver expensive on your liver. There's a there's a physical tax, shall we say? Um, but yeah, look, I'm, I'm actually very very interested in getting over to see them and uh, maybe that plan will come together as uh, Hannibal would say in the 18th so how about yourself uh, are you going to go over uh, I'd, I'd love to go over unfortunately I don't think it's going to happen but uh, yeah you can usually pick up the tickets to the, the sort of second third tier games pretty pretty on a pretty good value and pretty good cheaply actually so it's worth making the trip if you can go uh, it's one of those things you do want to go to the whole thing though, right? Get in the camper van and follow the team around and do the whole thing. Uh, but then, you know, my liver definitely would not keep up with that. <laughs> it's, there's no way that I would make that. Uh, okay, so uh, the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes where you can rate us and leave a review. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, our guest this week has been Kerry uh, Craig from, from JP Morgan. Uh, Kerry, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, thanks for inviting me back, Paul. David? Terrific chat. Thanks, David. Fantastic. I'll see you all next week. We'll catch you all next week. This show has been produced by uh, Rick Salter, and I'm Paul Colgan.
Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.